continuing our study in the book of 2 Samuel. Hear now God's holy word. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And behold, the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we, praise that, uh, we, we pray that as we enter this time of study and listening to your word today, that we would be changed, that we would be transformed by it. Father, uh, submit us by your Holy Spirit to your teaching here. Uh, may we hear the things that you want to speak to us, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to uh, not only understand the, the failure of your king, but also look forward to his redemption. Father, guide us through this study this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, whenever we hear of some scandal, some gross public sin committed by someone in a position of leadership or someone in a high pro public profile, when, when, whenever someone falls in a public way, we say, well, I guess his true colors are, are finally shining through. You know, we have this sense that the facade is torn away and they're finally in this moment of failure. We finally see the true man. Now we know what he's really like. We also do this with friends who hurt us or offend us with their behavior. We think, ah, now I see your true color, your true character is finally showing through. Now I get to see the real you. But is that always the case? I mean, maybe, maybe it's possible. There, there are people who use and manipulate and hide behind a facade and have this superficial outward approach that, that draws you in and, and makes you feel comfortable and then they just use that to zing you. And I, I know that and that happens, but, but is it always true? And, and, and is that the way that we ought to view every failure or every, every sin? And my question is, is it the real man who's acting foolishly and sinfully? Is all of his warmth and kindness and, and love, is, is this all out of character? Is it all an act all the time? Or, and, and when speaking of Christians particularly, is the real man the one we know and love and the sin is the thing that's out of character? Why are we so quick to assume that the sin is the revelation of what's been there all along? That this, that this sin is the revelation of the real man? Now, in one sense, sure, when, when we sin, we're, we're showing out the, the real, you know, our, our sin nature. We're showing Adam. And on this side of glory, we all have this in us. No one has completely eliminated all sin. But is that who we are? Is, is that our identity? As a people united to Jesus, is it our sin that defines us or is it our obedience to Jesus that defines us? And the sin is the uh, temporary insanity. Is the sin the thing that is the aberration? There are complexities to every person. There are complexities to every situation. 
Every person who struggles with sin is going to fail at some point, some more than others, some in more public ways and hurtful ways than others. But if all sin is dehumanizing, if all sin is foolishness, if all sin is falling away from the man that we're created to be, redeemed to be, then why don't we flip it around and say, for people united to Jesus, at least, faithful people, that the sin is out of character, not the righteousness. That's, that's not what's out of character. It's the sin that's out of character. And I, and I think through this, thinking perhaps that's a, it might be helpful in the way that we view David and David's sin over the next few chapters of our study. We're, we're being brought to see through this text how heinous and unthinkable and disturbing David's sin is. And yet at the same time, it really isn't a revelation of his true character. This sin is out of character for the David that we know. We've watched him from a youth while he's waited in the wings. He's held back from seizing glory. He's been humble. He's respected covenants. He's respected promises. He's kept promises. He's honored authority. He's obeyed the Lord. And as a king, we've seen him show loving kindness. We've seen him show covenant mercy to the men of Saul's house, whom we might all say, well, you know, you've done enough, David. You really don't need to do any more. And yet David keeps pursuing them in love and honor. Uh, We've seen him show uh, respect to foreign kings. We've seen him protect his men, guard their honor, come to their defense when they're shamed. And we've seen him go with his men into battle. That is who David is. David is the man who stood and faced down Goliath. That's who David is. And so when we see this sin, we don't stop and say, oh, well, there it is. It was under the surface the whole time. And now finally, we get to see who he really is. I think we flip that around and we say, no, this is insanity. This is weird. This is out of the norm. This is not who David is. So when we open this chapter of of 2 Samuel, we're not really suddenly seeing the true character of David, even though he has shown a pattern of trouble with respect to women. What we're seeing is the lunacy, the madness, the insanity of sin, and the places that sin takes you you to when you give yourself to it. Uh, These chapters, and we're only going to look at chapter 11 today, but this covers the next couple of chapters. These, These chapters are a there and back again account of David's journey away from sanity, away from obedience to God, Uh, into darkness and madness, and then God, by his grace, draws him back again. It's this kind of journey that that he goes on um, where uh, where he'll come full circle and he'll come back back to faithfulness, back into fellowship with the Lord. Now, if we've been paying attention all throughout the scriptures, if we've been paying attention to the patterns throughout the Bible, we'll notice that anytime God strikes a new covenant with man, There's always a falling away from that covenant. Every single time God strikes a covenant, there's a a fall immediately. Man fails to keep his end of the bargain. And the Lord has an opportunity to demonstrate his faithfulness to the covenant by reviving man out of his sin and setting him back in a position of, of grace. So in the very first pages of the Bible, God establishes a covenant with Adam. Adam immediately fell. Uh, God renews that covenant in the land, but Cain kills Abel. God gives a new covenant to Noah, and Ham, immediately after the flood, behaves wickedly. The Lord strikes a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham sins with Hagar. 
While the Lord is dealing with Moses at the top of Mount Sinai, the people are at the bottom of Mount Sinai behaving foolishly and wickedly and idolatrously. So every time there's a covenant, we see our failure to keep the covenant immediately. So it's no surprise that on the heels of the Lord striking a covenant with David, God promises him that his house would occupy the throne for eternity. It is no surprise that David would fall. We should come to expect this. And this fall of David bears a resemblance to the first fall. The the formula in both accounts is the same. Just as Adam and Eve saw the fruit, they Uh, desired it, they took it. So David sees the woman here. He sees that she's good and he takes her and he takes something that's forbidden to him. Not only is David repeating the sin of Adam, David is repeating uh, some of Saul's behavior that we uh, read about and saw uh, over the last several months. Remember how Saul was a humble, honorable man. Saul was a good man before he became king. It's only after becoming a king that he turns into this madman that starts acting like the kings of the nations. David Uh, had waited patiently to receive the kingdom from the Lord. But after being established as king, now David starts to uh, do this. He starts to act like Saul. He he starts this pattern of of seizing things in small ways, particularly seizing women, uh, adding women to his his marriage and multiplying wives, just as God uh, forbade the king from doing. And so he's acting like the kings of the nations. This is what Samuel said would happen. Remember, when the people wanted a king, Samuel warned them. He says, look, you're going to get a king. He's going to be a king like the nations. And he's going to start taking things. And once he starts grabbing, he's not going to stop. He's going to take, he's going to take, and he's going to take. Well, Saul took things that weren't his. And now David is starting to do this as well. Both Saul and David were kings. And so their sins are not personal sins. Their sins threaten the stability of the kingdom. If David fails to repent here, his robe and his crown are going to be ripped away the way that Saul's were. David's sin here presents a kingdom crisis. God has demonstrated what he has done and and intends to do with faithless kings like Saul. And now this is the crisis. What is the Lord going to do with David? Well, let's work through this story as if we've read it for the, uh, as if we're reading it for the first time. It's very easy. I know many of you have read this over and over and over, and you know this account by heart, and it can be very easy to just kind of gloss by it and say, oh yeah, I I know what happens here. But let's work through this story and see if there are any important details we might pick up on this pass. We read at the beginning that it was the spring of the year. Typically fighting and conflicts and wars in the ancient world, you you don't go out to march in inclement weather. Uh, you don't go out in the winter, but when the weather starts to warm up in the spring, you know, you start to feel a little froggy. You start to feel like it's time to go fight. You, know, you want to get back out and finish the business you left off last fall. What the business they left off last fall was that, as you remember last week, uh, David had pursued the Syrians who were in league with the Ammonites who had insulted and humiliated David's ambassadors. Do you remember that? So they had uh, humiliated David's ambassadors and then the Ammonites had brought the Syrians in as allies. So now David has pursued the Syrians and subdued them. Now it's time to come back and take care of the Ammonites, but winter comes, everything halts. Now in the spring, it's time to go clean this up. And, and it's the time when kings go out uh, and fight. It's, it's time to uh, go out. And this is the time when kings do this. That's part of a Hebrew I- idiom that pops up here and there throughout the Old Testament. We read this constantly, that kings go out 
and they come in. Kings go out and come in. God's kings have military duties. They go out to fight the serpent. They come back to protect the bride. And, and that's, their, that's their job. So this is the time when kings are to go out and fight, but David doesn't go out to fight the serpent. Remember, Ammonite kings, their kings are named Nahash. Nahash means serpent, right? He's the serpent king. And literally, David is called upon to go fight the serpent, go out and fight the serpent, but he doesn't. He doesn't go out and fight the serpent. He stays home and he doesn't protect the bride. He doesn't protect the bride. He takes advantage of the bride. So he fails in both sides. He doesn't go out and fight the serpent. He doesn't stay home and protect the bride. Not only is he staying home, but the first time we see him, he's just getting out of bed. He's getting out of his own warm bed. There's an implied delinquency there uh, when, when he rises. It happened one evening, David arose from his bed and he walks on the roof of his house. That there, the implied delinquency is this contrast with, as you know the story, Uriah later is going to refuse to sleep in his own bed while the armies of the Lord are out in the field sleeping in tents. And Uriah says righteously, how can I take ease when God's people are out there on the battlefield? At the end of the story, we'll see David's repentance when he's out leading his men again on to victory. But in the start of this, the king acts as if it's playtime. The men are out on the field of battle. The men are outside of the city. Well, there's something very unsettling about this. Just like it's always unsettling to me when I see a president playing golf, when we have men in, uh, in hot spots around the world, in places of, of hostility. That doesn't seem right, does it? It doesn't seem right that the king should, uh, should be taking a, a, a break, that he should be at ease when there are men at battle. Either go uh, finish the job and come back so we can all play golf or bring them all back home if it's not that important to begin with, if you're not going to take things seriously. Well, David's not taking things seriously. He's hanging out. He gets out of his bed and he walks out on the porch or the patio that was on top of his house. In the way that houses were constructed in the ancient world, they had flat roofs and you could go out on your roof. We often see in various scenes of the Bible, men eating or relaxing on the roof, people feasting on the roof. And so he's on the top of his house. And since the king's house is higher than anyone else's house, he can look down into other people's houses and he can look down into other people's yards and their private spaces. And so he sees a young woman bathing. Now, she's not being immodest. She's not doing something wrong here. She's not asking for trouble. There would be an expectation of privacy if you're in your own garden or in your own enclosed space, or even if you're in your own house or on your house. There's no, there's no expectation that someone is going to leer at you. Uh, this was going to be a, a private space. And uh, she's purifying herself. There, there's a reference there to the ritual cleansing, a ritual baptism after her monthly impurity. And there's a reason we have that information there. It sets the timeline for us. If she's cleansing herself after her monthly impurity, that means she's not pregnant. That means that uh, her husband left and she's not expecting a child. And it also shows that some time passes before David commits his sin. So that's, that's helpful to set us where we are in, in the whole story. The author points us, uh, points out the fact that, that this woman, Bathsheba, is the daughter of Eliam. Now, now, who is Eliam? Where do we find this name? We haven't met him yet. 
We'll see him later. Eliam is one of David's 30 valiant men, part of his elite royal fighting force. That's Bathsheba's dad, one of David's mighty men. Eliam was the son of Ahithophel, one of David's chief advisors from the tribe of Judah. So Bathsheba is the granddaughter of Ahithophel, one of David's advisors. She is the, she is the daughter of Eliam, one of David's mighty men, one of his fighting friends, one of his closest friends from his own tribe. Bathsheba is not a stranger to David. This whole story becomes a lot more disgusting when you think about the fact that David probably knew Bathsheba from the time that she was a little girl, right? The fact that she was at least a generation younger than he was, a, a granddaughter of his counselor, a daughter of his friend, she, she was at least a generation younger. So, so when you think of this story and you think of what David does here, this is not a young man enraptured beyond self-control with the beauty of a young woman. And he, and he can't control himself because, you know, boys will be boys, you know, that rascal, that boy. No, no, that's not it at all. This is a, this is a lecherous, creepy, middle-aged guy leering at a newlywed young woman. That's, that's the, that's the picture here. David's almost 40. If he's not 40 yet, he's almost there. Bathsheba's in her early 20s, if she's the next generation down. So David desires her. He sees her. He desires her. He inquires about her. He sends messengers to go get her and bring her to him. This, this isn't impulsive. This requires time and planning and cooperation from his servants in his house. She hasn't had children yet, at least she's not expecting now. Her husband is away, and he uses his position as a king. He uses his position of age and authority to take advantage of her. He uses her, and then he sends her away. He discards her and thinks, that'll be the end of that. No telling. Have you tried this before? Is this the first time that you've done this? In God's grace, she comes back with child presumably several weeks later, right? Because that's the way things work. It's going to be several weeks. And when she comes back with child, when she comes back expecting, there is no question who the daddy is. Now, now David is apparently thinking, you know, hey, everyone's out of town. I'll just invite this little girl over here. I'll have my fun. And that'll be the end of that. But now he's got a problem. And instead of confessing his sin, and instead of dealing with it, he attempts cover-up after cover-up to try to get out of his responsibility and escape, uh, uh, escape the right thing to do. And so here's plan A. Here's the first thing that he tries. Verse 6. David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When, when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord, uh, with all the servants of his Lord, and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents 
and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields? Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. The idea is here, if, if I can just get Uriah to come back uh, from the battlefield, if I can get Bathsheba's husband to come home, treat him like a hero, maybe get him a little bit drunk, give him gifts, tell him to go, go home, take off your shoes, put your feet up, relax. Maybe he'll sleep with his wife. Then maybe if I'm lucky, he can't count to nine too well because it's getting real close here. Maybe he can't count to nine. And maybe when he hears his wife is expecting, he'll just be so excited about being a daddy and everything will be fine. And I'm off scot-free. Of course, Uriah is a Hittite. So he's from a different race than Bathsheba. And maybe the baby will have David's nose or something, but maybe we can just explain that all away. You know, there's, he hasn't covered all the details here. He hasn't covered all the corners. I don't know how he thinks he can keep this all secret because people in his house know what's going on. He sent servants to go get her and bring her over. She came back one day expecting. People in his house know what's up. But Uriah here, he doesn't want to play along with David's plan. Uh, Uriah is a Gentile convert, right? He's a Hittite, he's a Gentile, and as new converts tend to be, he's very black and white. He speaks passionately. It is inappropriate for me to go home and rest and turn on ESPN and put my feet up while the men are out in the field of battle. I can't take ease while the army is in the field. His word is convicting and prophetic to David because David shouldn't be here either in this situation. Which leads me to wonder, if Uriah is not just a little bit suspicious about what's going on here. Now, I don't want to take anything away from his loyalty to his men, but is there another reason why Uriah won't go home to his wife? He must be thinking, why would David call me back from the field of battle to give a report? He's asking me all these questions. There are a lot of people who could give a report. There are a lot of people who could answer his questions. Why me? Uh, did Uriah know that something is up? And is he making a public display of not going home? He sleeps with David's servants. He sleeps where David's servants sleep so that there are a lot of witnesses to where Uriah is. Is he making a public display of not going home so that when the baby is born, there won't be any question that it's not his child? The sad thing is, is that Uriah doesn't know the extent to which David is willing to go to cover up his sin. Uriah uh, is uh, obviously kind-hearted and noble and faithful, and he doesn't know that he's playing with his life here. Because now that didn't work. Plan A didn't work. Now David moves to plan B in verse 14. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while, David, uh, while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. He makes Uriah carry a letter to Joab 
containing the details of his own demise, containing the orders for his own destruction. Here, now David is wrapping Joab into his sin. And the way that David is now in league with Joab shows us later that while Joab really needs to be dealt with, Joab is, is loyal to David in a way that, that not many people are and that he's willing to just join him in this cover-up in this sin while keeping himself safe. We'll see in a minute. But I thought one of the reasons for trying to cover up your sin was to limit the exposure and limit the number of people who are suspicious that something is up. Here, David's plan would dramatically increase suspicion because all the soldiers involved in the strategy would know that something weird is going on. These are not normal, conventional orders. You don't go someone with, a, uh, with someone to a fight and then pull back from that man so that he's left out in the open to be killed. That was David's plan. Let's all go send him out there, fight. Now everybody drop back and let Uriah be killed. No, that's, that, that, nobody does that. David is trying to limit the damage. Just kill Uriah so I can just marry Bathsheba and everything will be normal. No one will suspect anything. But this plan is anything but clever. It's brutal and it's blundering because sin is stupid and sin makes you stupid. It clouds your thinking. So Joab doesn't do that exactly. Joab doesn't do exactly what the king says to do. He modifies the plan to do something a little bit more discreet. He puts Uriah at a place in a siege where there are other valiant men and Uriah is killed along with several others and it doesn't appear as suspicious uh, at, at first. It's so ironic to think here that David's master plan is to cover up his sin and it's become one of the best known stories in the Bible. He tries to cover this all up and we all know what happened. Everybody, we all know the details. If you try to cover up something on your own with your own little fig leaf righteousness, just try to, try to cover it up, it's going to be exposed. And it's going to be exposed in an embarrassing way. Only if the blood of the sacrifice covers your sin will it truly be covered. For, that's the blood, uh, for us, that's the blood of Jesus. The only way to deal with guilt and sin is to cover it with the blood of the sacrifice. Instead, we try to cover and excuse and escape and this kind of behavior. David is very much like us and we're like him. In verse 18, Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you know, did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck? Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth. Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? You see, uh, Joab didn't do exactly what David said. And so when Joab sends a messenger back to David, he knows that David might have something to say about that. So he's, he's prompting the messenger for how to, re to, how to respond. Uh, then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archer shot from the wall at your servants and some of the king's servants are dead. And he doesn't wait. He doesn't do what Joab tells him to do. He says, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. He doesn't, he doesn't wait for David to protest. 
Then David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. After, after Uriah is killed, Joab reports back to David and gives the messenger the story and also responds in case David is enraged by this news, Joab doesn't know what kind of insanity David has gotten into with the sin. And maybe he'll respond to the messenger the way that Saul responded to things with these unpredictable outbursts of, of anger. So Joab reminds the messenger and, and he brings this up that possibly David would remember. He reminds us, Joab does, of Abimelech, the son of Gideon. Why, why, would, why would Joab bring this up? Well, remember... Abimelech was this self-appointed king, this false king during the days of the judges. Remember, he killed his 70 brothers. He went on a murderous conquest. He pursued his enemy all the way to the inner tower of the city from which a woman dropped a millstone on his head and killed him. Joab introduces this connection. Joab brings up Abimelech. On the surface, it may sound like Joab is making a comparison with the way that Uriah died and Abimelech died. He got too close to the wall in the fight and he was killed. You know, that happens sometimes. You aren't supposed to do that. You're not supposed to get too close to the wall, but he did that and, it, and that just happened. But maybe the real comparison is between Abimelech and David. David has shown that he is willing to maintain his power by killing his brothers the way that Abimelech did. David killed his brother Uriah. And now David is the one whose head is now in danger of being crushed by a woman. You have to be thinking by this point, the story is making the rounds. Military wives are going to talk to each other. Bathsheba is pregnant. Everyone at, at home knows what's going on here. Messengers have just uh, returned from the battlefield. Messengers have left from home to go back to the battlefield. Joab is smart. Something is fishy. And David is piling up offenses. But David doesn't respond the way that, that Joab thinks he's going to respond. He doesn't he doesn't act out in anger. How does David receive the report? The messenger just tells him everything, but David's wrath doesn't rise. Instead, David gives this calloused response. He says, well, you know, the sword devours one as well as the other. War, war kills people. You know, you can't win them all. Stuff happens. He just kind of shrugs. Is David trying to contain his relief at the news that Uriah is dead? Or is David just that hardened. Now, of course, the messenger, when he comes, he doesn't say anything about Abimelech, but David, would he even hear it, is even thinking this way. David is not behaving like a biblical king, and he's certainly not acting like his son Jesus to come. David is behaving like a king who takes the lives of his people rather than a king who dies for his people. David now, he's taking our women and he's killing our men. He throws their lives around on the battlefield like garbage. David is a king like the nations who takes from others and uses his power to get what he wants. Bathsheba mourns when her husband dies, when she gets word that Uriah is dead. And when her mourning is over, David marries her and she bears him a son. And that's not the end of the story. 
David hasn't smoothed everything over. He hasn't covered up anything. The trouble is just about to start because he has provoked Yahweh's wrath in this. See, in the pagan world, the king is divine. In Egypt, the king is God. In Rome, later on, much later on, Caesar answers to no one. But in Israel, the king submits to the Lord God who chose him as king. And you have to observe his commandments. There is someone bigger than you. There is someone higher than you that you have to answer to as Israel's king. And so the story just underscores the insanity of sin and the glamorlessness of sin. How attractive and titillating and how exciting was the thought of having Bathsheba at first when he first saw her. And then how brutal and ugly is the sin when it's actually carried out. It's so terse, the verbs that are used here of David. It's so, it's so, it's so ugly. He sent, he took, he lay. That's what he sent, he took, he lay. He indulged his, his, his passion and there's no adornment. There's no glamour to it. There's nothing but action. There's not even a wisp of conversation between David and Bathsheba. No caring affection. There's no love. That's because that's not what this is about. It's not about love. It's not about affection. It's only lust. David doesn't even call her by name. He doesn't speak to her. And at the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. That's, that's how it refers, the woman. This is so far beneath the David that we've gotten to know all these years that, that we've read about his life. This is so far beneath this David that, that we love. If we are seeing David's true colors, and if we say, oh, yep, there's the real David, finally, we finally see who he really is, well, then what we're seeing is who he is apart from obedience to God's law who he is apart from obedience to the God who called him, the God who anointed him, the God who sustained him in the midst of all of his trouble with Saul, the God who protected him, the God who is building his house. David has left and has rejected and removed himself from faithfulness to that God. That's why God doesn't leave him where he is. The very next verse, we're going to read this next week. The very next verse, verse in chapter 12 is, then Yahweh sent Nathan to David. That's the very next thing that happens. Yahweh sent Nathan the prophet to David. But until we get there next Sunday, what it helps us to see here today as we stop is what a deviation, what a gross perversion, what a distraction, what insanity is sin. And to understand in watching this play out that sin, in David's case here, the sin doesn't begin with this adulterous encounter in his bedroom. That's not where the sin started. The sin began with this long series of incremental idolatries, little rebellions, small failures that led up to this. First, there was the thought of staying home. You know, all the kings are going out to battle. My men are gonna go out and fight the Ammonites. Joab's gonna go out there. My place is on the field of battle. That's where I belong. But, I just may not go this year. Maybe, maybe I'll stay home this time. And then you continually to convince yourself, you, you, you continue to convince yourself to do that. Yeah, maybe that's a good idea. Maybe, maybe no one will mind. Maybe it'll be okay. 
You convince yourself to do it. And then you think about all the things you'll be able to do with all that free time. What, what, what will I be able to accomplish or enjoy if I'm not out there sleeping with my head in the mud with a bunch of other soldiers? What, what, what's, what will I be able to do? And then you have this growing feeling of superiority and this, this growing feeling of untouchability. You know what? That's beneath me to be out there. Plus, I'm the king. And if I say I don't want to go, I don't have to go. I am a law to myself. I am autonomous. I can do what I want to do and nobody can say a thing about it. And then this, this toleration of ingratitude, which leads to boredom and not being satisfied with the four wives he already has, this openness to indulging his flesh in new ways, not turning away in modesty when he sees Bathsheba bathing, planning and pursuing wickedness thereafter, you see, and there are probably many, many, many more steps that we don't know about because we don't know every minute of every day that led up to this. But every step of the way, every little part of this journey was a weed to be plucked. It was a little viper to be killed. It was a little sin to stamp out in its small seed form and not to let it grow, not to nurture it. But each thought was nurtured. Each, each rebellion was given room. Each idol, instead of being knocked over and destroyed, each idol was put up on a little pedestal. Let me put another little idol up on the pedestal. It's a small one. It's not a big one. It's a little one. And the idols get bigger and bigger and bigger until his life is now, he's in deep rebellion to God. Very much in danger of losing everything that he's worked for to this point. See, sins always start out small. Sins always start out tiny, tiny weeds, little vipers. And when we read this story, we start to think, oh my goodness, what, what little weeds am I allowing to grow right now? What, what little idols? Just the, just the little ones, you know, little action figure idols, not the big ones, you know, not the little bitty ones. Which ones am I setting up on little pedestals and allowing to remain? Which, which little vipers, the little cute ones, am I allowing to live and I'm not putting to death? Which ones? You see, what we're called to do is what David didn't do, and that's at the first temptation, at the first desire to turn away from what God has required of us, at the first desire to kill it, to stamp it out, to remove it and destroy it, to nail it to the cross, to repent of it, and then to walk in faithfulness because they add up and because they lead us to destruction, you have to kill the little ones. You have to always be stamping them out and you have to be destroying them. That's, that's at least one response to this text, but certainly uh, we, uh, we're gonna see the, the grace and the redemption come as God calls him back to himself. And we'll see that in the next couple of weeks, let's pray. Father, give us grace and the strength of your Holy Spirit to do just that. Father, we ask you to uh, give us the insight and the clarity to see these little idols that we've erected, these little sins that we're keeping on life support that you've put to death. Father, help us to stamp them out and to, to destroy them before they destroy us. Father, give us, give us your grace and your mercy every day and do not leave us in our sin, but pursue us as you pursued David. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.